I still get really nervous. No, it's all right. Yeah. All right, I didn't like do my routine earlier. Sorry. Red, yellow, <laughs> red, yellow leather. Okay, all right, I'm on. I'm really excited to have on our Small Moment Big Impact podcast today, Dr. Jennifer Johnston, the assistant professor for San Jose State and also the principal investigator for gene therapy working on a cure for hemophilia A. So I'm really excited and I feel as though there's so much to learn from you just about what you're doing and the effects that it will have on just everyone globally who is going, uh, who has this type of illness, hemophilia A. And um, I'm just inspired by your story from what we've got to learn together prior to just shooting the podcast and how you've just 14 years into it now. So kind of share with us a little bit, what got you started in, or interested or inspired about gene therapy? I went to undergrad, um, and all I really knew was that I wanted to look in a microscope all day. Okay. <laughs> um, that's pretty much what I figured out from high school, that I really liked the small stuff that happened and being able to see it bigger. And so I got my degree in genetic engineering um, and took a genetics class with um, a professor by the name of Dr. David Duvernel. Um, and as I was in my senior year, uh, I was staring at graduation having no idea what would happen next. I was a first-generation college student and didn't really know what type of jobs were available to someone with a degree in biology. Um, and so I was really just kind of sitting in the hallway and this professor passed by me and said, have you considered a master's degree? Um, you should think about working in my lab. Um, and honestly, I had no other opportunities available at the time, and it just seemed like a good thing to walk through. Wow. Um, so I took a leap and walked through that open door, um, and it changed everything. Wow. So just circling back to what you said about your first one in your family to actually go to uh, college, um, how was that experience of application at all? Kind of, I'd love to hear that. The application experience yeah. was, yeah, probably much different than most people now, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, I think I applied to one school. Okay. <laughs> I didn't really know that people applied to multiple skills. I didn't have that, that knowledge. Um, but I applied to, I actually started out at St. Louis University. My mom was working at the hospital there and there was a tuition reimbursement type of program. Um, I went through my first two years there as an engineering student. Oh, so you started off as an engineer. Yes, I oh, did. You, you would have worked really well out here in the Silicon Valley also. <laughs> I know, right. <laughs> um, I started off as a biomedical engineer. Okay. I still knew I wanted to do the microscope thing. Yeah. And my parents said Engin engineering is the way to go. Um, that much they knew. and. Um, Two years into the program, the hospital took away the reimbursement. Um, and so I was kind of stuck with this situation of how are we gonna pay for this private institution, um, which we couldn't afford. And so I ended up switching from there to a state school um, next to my parents' home. Nice. Um, and so I ended up finishing there um, and switched to genetic engineering, which is pretty much, this, well, not the same, but was actually more of what I was really interested in fortuitously. Um, 
So yeah, so the application process was much different than probably most people here in the Silicon Valley. <laughs> um, I took the ACT once, didn't okay. even know that people took it more than once, didn't know that they took prep classes for that. Um, yeah, and then got into the schools and just kind of sort of made my way through. So you went at it almost like a lone ranger. Yes. Into the, the field of, okay, this is application, this is what I want to do, or at least, at least this is what I think I want to do, mm -hmm. to now fast forward 14 years later, yeah. you're working on a cure for hemophilia it's A. Crazy. So now, being in the industry for uh, 14 years and now at San Jose State, um, how was the the transition from after your bachelor's to getting your doctorate and just the road that way? Yeah, the, so the transition? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so like I said, I had this genetics professor who I really don't know why he approached me, to be completely honest. Um, I assume I must have got one of the highest scores in his genetics class. Okay, fair <laughs> I, enough. I assume it was had something to do with that, being a professor now and how I choose um, students. But um, yeah, he. I ended up being, I was working in his lab as a master's student and I was studying uh, retrotransposable transposable elements, which has not much to do with gene theory. But Break that down in now. layman's terms. So what those are, those are genes that jump around in our genome. Okay. Um, so they've been around for a long time and they move from place to place. And as a geneticist, I found that fascinating. Um, so I took the opportunity to study that. And just in reading some background literature, I saw people were using that for gene therapy purposes to correct genetic disorders um, like hemophilia or sickle cell even. And mm -hmm. I found it really fascinating. Um, and so I was ending my master's degree and my um, PI, who is Dr. David Duvernel at the time, mm -hmm. um, brought me into his lab and said to me, have you considered getting a PhD? And I kind of chuckled a little and I was like, yeah, I can't afford any more education. <laughs> um, and he opened my eyes to this idea that when you get a PhD in the biomedical sciences that you have your tuition reimbursed and you get a stipend. Oh. So it's like having a job, um, but you're getting trained for your next steps. And to me, that was eye-opening. I had no idea. Yeah. No one had ever told me that before. Not it's even like as first an undergrad. Mentor, my, it was, he was my first mentor. He changed my life significantly. Wow. And I'm very grateful for, um, for that conversation, that little conversation that we had. And like, I still remember to this day, it was very quick. Yeah. <laughs> Just wow. a, little, a little nugget that he like dropped. And from there, I applied to about four or five schools. Um, and ended up getting accepted at Emory University in their pharma pharmacology program. Wow. And um, which is actually one of the top 10 pharmacology programs in the United States. Amazing. Um, and did my work there in a gene therapy lab, which um, is changing the world for hemophilia, especially in underdeveloped countries. Wow, that sounds like it. So let's chat a little bit about hemophilia A and the actual uh, disease, kind of break that down. Um, I only started learning more about it from speaking with you this morning. Mm -hmm. So sh uh, share with me a little bit more. Yeah, so hemophilia A is a severe disease for a lot of people um, globally. So globally it affects about 300,000 people worldwide. Um, they have major bleeding issues. Um, and the way I like to explain it to people is that most people think, oh, you get a paper cut, mm -hmm. I'll form you know, a little clot over it my blood will stop, you know, 
oozing out of my body. My white blood cells will go ahead and take care of itself. <laughs> right, exactly. For hemophilia patients, sure, that's the case, but it's really more of a problem as internal. Internal bleeding is an issue. So um, just walking up the stairs or doing a, a quick sprint or a marathon are things that hemophilia patients cannot do. Like mm -hmm. They really need to think about all the movements they make because those blood vessels and their joints are sensitive to that type of strenuous activity. Um, and can rupture, and when it does, um, a clot won't form and they'll bleed out into those tissues. And so they can have really large swellings in their kneecaps um, and well, other joints as well. Mm -hmm. And so um, in order to combat that, people who have individ or individuals who have hemophilia A in the United States, let's say, um, will get regular prophylactic administration of recombinant factor eight or a type of protein replacement therapy. And how often do they have to get that type of prophylactic? That's a great question. So about three times a week. Wow. It doesn't last very long. That's the reason why the half-life of factor eight is pretty short. Mm -hmm. um, and that costs up to $400,000 a year wow. for patients. Just looking at the numbers for if there's over 300,000 uh, people globally who are affected, and it's 400,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Is that just in US dollars? Oh yes, in US, in US dollars. dollars. That's $1.2 billion right. a year just for treatment right. itself. Wow, so how, do, uh, how does anyone with hemophilia A currently pay for their um, treatments uh, if they're in a third world country? Right, so in a third world country, let's say like India, uh -huh. um, they're not getting treatment. It's just not offered to them. Wow. And so those patients are kind of sort of walking around as a ticking time bomb. Oh my gosh. In essence. Um, and mostly they don't live to be past 30. Wow. So how does one get diagnosed or know that they have hemophilia A to even begin with? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, it's a genetic disorder, which means it affects children okay. at birth. Um, and so, and it's also a predominantly male disease since the gene that's missing is on the X chromosome. Okay. So we call it, as a genetic term, it's an X-linked disease. Um, male. Yeah, so usually during circumcision mm -hmm. is when you find out that okay. um, a baby is a hemophilia patient. Do they just start bleeding out? They'll start bleeding. Well, yeah, the, it won't It won't heal. stop, yeah. Exactly. And just throughout their their lives, is it just something where you have to just constantly be on watch? Constantly be on watch, yep, especially in underdeveloped countries. Yeah. Um, and then here in the United States, they would go to the hospital every week wow. and get injections. That is a very uh, difficult and challenging life just to, to live. It is. So what you're working on now is a cure for hemophilia A, um, you know, I'm a parent, I have three kids, so just hearing that it can affect a child all the way until their 30s, I, it's almost unimaginable um, the, um, just the type of uh, care and uh, sacrifices and everything in order uh, to do oh, yeah. so, because I was just talking with Big Man this morning, our media, is his daughter is sick and you know how much time you have to put onto a child or work with a child as they're right. sick and getting right. better but for right. someone who has a severe illness for the rest of their lives right. um, that is just so what you're working on is it's amazing and so how far along are you with the 
portrait of the the cure itself. Sure. Um, so I wanted to mention, um, besides being in underdeveloped countries, about 30% of hemophilia patients, even here in the United States, um, actually their body sees their treatment as a foreign protein. Okay. And they'll develop what we call inhibitors or their um, white blood cells or their immune system. Mm -hmm. We'll see that and say, oh, that's that's weird, that's not yours, and we'll look at it as a pathogen. And so then they have no treatment whatsoever. Um, and so currently what I'm doing is um, I'm using these things known as CRISPRs, okay. which stands for clustered, regularly interspersed palindromic repeats. Which Say is that one more time. Crazy. Uh, <laughs> so they're CRISPRs. Okay. Um, clustered, regularly interspersed palindromic repeats. Okay. Um, and those were actually identified um, out here in the Bay Area at UC Berkeley. Um, and what they are is they are an auto, like a natural immunity that bacteria have to viruses that affect bacteria. And what it does is they're basically, in short, molecular scissors. And we've came up with ways in which you can target these scissors to specific locations in the genome. And so the idea is I can make a cut in the genome mm -hmm. and our body repairs cuts every day. So just radiation from the sun, UV rays, that can actually cause some breaks in the genome. And so our body already knows how to fix it. And so if I have this molecular scissor and I create a break in a specific location, my body knows how to fix that. And one of the ways it fixes it is through this process known as homologous recombination. Okay. Um, and so what it does is it looks for regions in the genome that are similar. And it says, oh, it looks, my cut right here looks just like this other piece. And so it'll kind of sort of paste that in. And so what we're doing is we're trying to hijack that process. And so we're putting factor eight, which is a gene that is missing in hemophilia patients mm -hmm. and surrounding it with regions that are similar, are regions of homology, and that will flip in and be repaired by this endogenous pathway. Wow, so it's almost like a hack. Exactly, uh, in a sense, for little right? genome hackers. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, there's computer hackers exactly. and there's genome. That, that's amazing. So how far along uh, are you with it? Is there currently clinical studies going on right now? So there are other clinical studies. Um, with my work, we're doing what I like to call preclinical studies. Okay. So um, factor eight is normally produce the protein from the liver, and that is not really at the, the technology is not there to actually target the liver yet. Why is that? Um, well, just it's a bit invasive. <laughs> oh yeah, I can <laughs> to see target that. the liver. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the liver does a lot of things that are important to your body. So yes. until we kind of get over those hurdles technologically and clinically, it's not really possible. Yeah. Um, so highly invasive. Yes, highly invasive for these individuals who are already experiencing severe dep um, depression and quality of life. Yeah. So. Um, what we're planning to do is we're planning to take cells out of the patient's body, um, specifically a stem cell or a hematopoietic stem cell that actually sits in our bones. Okay. Um, and people take these out all the time. Uh, so for patients who have leukemia, that's a pro their cell, those cells are actually problematic for them. So we know how to remove them from a patient. Okay. And then we know how to give them a transplant from somebody else. And so we know how to remove them. We know how to put them back in. Now we just need to figure out how to change their genetic. Um, so I need to find a location to actually insert factor eight as a gene addition type of therapy as opposed to a gene correction. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. So how, what gets you, um, what's inspiring, what's keeping you want to do uh, this? Because I know that it's not going to happen overnight. 
Right. It's going to be a very lengthy and challenging uh, process from A to get to Z to where the cure is actually done. Right. Uh, what motivates or what inspires you to continue to do this type of work all the time? So actually, I would, I would actually say my students are what inspires me, okay. which is probably a little shocking. <laughs> um, so I specifically chose to go to an institution like San Jose State because I wanted to make the same change that my mentor made for me a long time ago. So a lot of students at San Jose State are first gen. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them are underrepresented um, minorities in the biomedical field. And so I wanted to be a part of that. And so by giving them this little taste of research that has a huge clinical impact, mm -hmm. um, I can continue every day <laughs> past like the hurdles that happen in normal research and can just continue to say that we're gonna continue to make progress and in so doing, I'm changing the face of science and I'm giving these people hope um, and guiding them and hopefully being a part of their small change. Yeah, so that, so if we circle back, your first mentor was the one who made that small moment that right. made the big impact. Right. And now you are paying it forward right. 10X with every student right. that you come in contact with, you're now placing that small moment and giving them a big impact in their lives. Right. Wow, that is amazing. <laughs> like flat out, I have to say hands down, um, not only for you to experience that, but now you are helping others. And, I, and for me, just to see that is that you, you're trailblazing this, but you have others behind you that are continuously gonna move this forward. Right. Uh, all the way through. So if you had an estimate to say how much longer before you kind of see this through or where you have like that breaking moment of this is, this is, this is working and it's gonna go through. What was your estimate timeline? Be? My timeline? Yeah. Um, so I'm shooting for like a 10 year plan, okay. I think. Um, and I could be completely off on that estimate, but I'm shooting for a 10 year plan. So currently right now, what we're doing in the lab is we are trying to find the best location to actually insert factor eight. So um, one of the locations that we're actually looking at is what I call what is known as the RHD locus. Okay. So that's the site in red blood cells that tells you whether you have a blood type that's positive or negative. So there's lots of people walking around with negative blood type mm -hmm. and they seem to have no consequences for that gene being disrupted. And so we're trying to insert factor eight in that location. So that way factor eight can be produced from red blood cells, mm -hmm. and those red blood cells can kind of sort of circulate within the body as factor eight protein factories. Um, and so we're trying to, right now, currently prove that that is a good location. Um, we're doing it in primary cell lines, and then we'll do so in the hematopoietic stem cell, um, and then we'll move on to a clinical trial to do that in patients, which takes a little bit of time because you got to go through phase one, which is more safety than phase two, which would be efficacy. And that needs to go out a couple of years before you can guarantee that it's safe yeah. and effective for your patient. So not only do you do preclinical, then you have different phases yes. and then all the way down the line. But yeah. to have a, a plan, uh, an actual timeline, it's definitely a, a way to kind of work uh, towards that too. Mm -hmm. uh, it's 
just so much learning uh, on this here. So if you, um, have you ever come across someone specifically that had hemophilia uh, A in your, in your studies or understudies? Yeah, so um, we, usually as scientists, we tend to disconnect ourselves from patients. Yeah. Um, it makes us a little bit more emotionally connected and it can be actually quite hard um, to stay positive in a lot of ways. But um, I went to, after Emory, I went to Stanford for my postdoc. Mm -hmm. um, and I was a postdoctoral fellow there. Um, and during my time there, there was actually a physician at Stanford University who had hemophilia, who was studying um, cancer actually. And um, he happened to pass while I was there. Um, and it was quite a story that um, emotionally disturbed me, mm -hmm. having been someone who was trying to find a cure for that. Um, and he passed at quite a young age. I believe he was like in his late 30s. Um, so that was like the first real emotional connection I had. Even though I didn't know him personally, mm -hmm. I just knew that he worked in a building steps away from where I was every day. And it was difficult to know that I wasn't able to help change that life. But it, it probably gets you going further to continue what you're doing, even right. though it's a lengthy uh, process. Right. Uh, I can see why you don't want to get emotionally attached uh, to patients because it would definitely affect. Like uh, in, in my industry in real estate, it's an extremely emotional uh, type of transaction or life turning point when someone yeah. buys their home yeah. or they've lived in their home for 35 years and their kids are now uh, left <laughs> off in college or all married and they're just empty nesters. It's yeah. a huge emotional uh, process but for us. We're there as their advocates to kind of just walk them through the steps and everything uh, with with your line of work there and the cure and everything that you're working with in gene therapy. I can see that. Yeah, if you had personal relationships with patients, uh, then that could definitely skew. Right. Um, and it could skew the way you look at the data, things in your high, because you wanted to move it faster, you could want to, you could want something to look more positive than it actually is. Yeah. Um, and so you could have to keep yourself distance in order to remain ethical mm -hmm. in many ways. Yeah. Wow. So how do you do it? How, <laughs> how do you uh, put that divide and say, okay, this is Dr. Jennifer Johnston <laughs> over here. I don't, you know, but you still read, I'm pretty sure about yeah. all yeah. these cases. How do you do it? How do you split how do you the, keep the- How do I keep myself distant? Yeah, the distant. Well, you know, I work in the lab a lot. Okay. <laughs> White coat in the lab. Exactly. Yeah. So I just keep myself secluded. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I would say at least it, it's much easier at San Jose State um, because we're not actually associated with um, a medical facility. Yes. Whereas at Emory, um, I was where I was working in the lab. It was right next door to the pediatric hospital, and at Stanford, it was right next door to the pediatric facilities. And so it was a lot harder to disconnect because I would eat my lunch in the pediatric cafeterias, and so it was harder to not think who in here potentially needs my help. Got it. Um, so it's a little easier at San Jose State. It helps keep me more focused with being the mentor, mm -hmm. um, and trying to give students a translational, you know, research experience. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit easier that way. Um, but yeah, does that, does that answer yeah. your question? And, and within uh, mentorship uh, with your students, kind of break that down from how, when you initially just meet a student and what type of mentorship you're 
uh, passing along to them other than just uh, being their professor? Yeah, so I'm still getting the hang of that. <laughs> what I'm learning is that each student is different. Yes. Um, and each student comes to me with like a different idea of what they want to do. Um, so at first I usually try to figure out what it is their, their strength is and then highlight that strength in some way. Um, so that way they can build some confidence because I think most students, um, when they're starting into a research lab, it's intimidating, it's scary. There's a lot of things in there they don't understand. And so like fear kind of keeps them from making that first step. Mm -hmm. So I try to first like find out what they're good at and then instill some confidence in that by yeah. like, if they do a technique well, I give them the opportunity and I say, hey, why don't you share what you did with this person? And that kind of sort of just builds a little confidence in them. Nice. Um, and then when they make a mistake, because they're going to, that's part of the process. I've made my fair share of mistakes. Yeah, we learn from our exactly. mistakes. I, yeah. I, um, you know, I asked them, like immediately following, um, I asked them, so what'd you learn from this experience? Like, what, what will you never do again? Yeah. You know, and they'll say, well, I'll never do, you know? Yeah. Um, and then usually I tell them, can share that with someone. So yeah. that way someone else can learn from your mistake. Exactly. Because if you made it, yeah. think about it. Someone else is going to do the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, so that's usually how I go about the mentoring process. Wow. Um, and then also by sharing with them my experience. I think my, like what I went through and how I started at a very similar institution. Southern Illinois is very similar to San Jose State. And let them realize that you can go from here and you can end up at places like Stanford. Like that is totally possible. Mm -hmm. And just letting them know, dream big. Yeah. And the sky's the limit. Yep. They always say, uh, I have this quote, impossible just takes a little longer. That's all it is. <laughs> That's it's, true. You just keep working at it. Right. Wow, so how many mentees would you say that you have till today, today. already that you've been working with? Yeah, so um, I've been at San Jose State for two years now. Um, so I would say just at San Jose State, even though I mentored a few students while I was at Stanford and even at Emory. Um, I have currently 10 students in my lab. Um, I have, uh, which range from undergrad, brand new, starting off, like sophomores to master's level students. Um, so it's pretty exciting yeah. for the most part. There's a range of students and a range of motivations. And you're creating all sorts of uh, experiences uh, for them at the same time. Yeah. Uh, what amazes me is that what you said about how you instill confidence uh, into them and even leaving it open for yourself to be vulnerable, to tell them about your mistakes and what you've learned so that they can move themselves forward too and giving them the possibilities of being able to go from wherever they're at right. to Stanford right. University, which right. one of the best colleges out there in the, in the nation itself, yeah. and to be working together side by side with you yeah. uh, on this, uh, this cure for hemophilia. Right. So it's really giving them the range of, you can literally do anything. Exactly, and exactly. And not necessarily do they have to stay within gene therapy for hemophilia A. Right. right. Uh, if there's something that, let's just say, cancer and illnesses are all around us. Right. All around right. us. And when you were talking about how um, the patients have to go visit three times a week, uh, it just gave me thoughts of, uh, one of my really good friend's mother who is going through dialysis and he flies up from San Diego to take her to her dialysis appointment and just her 
um, current life situation and how things have changed so dramatically. Right. And even with uh, him to be able to take off from his work to come up and take care of mom, it, it's, it's a story in itself to just say, illnesses is everywhere. So with, with what you're doing with your mentorship to these students, uh, I admire very much. Because now, not only can they continue in gene therapy, they can, if something becomes near and dear to their heart, they're able mm -hmm. to take that and then focus and emphasize uh, on that specific matter yeah. or disease to itself. Right. And one of my um, favorite things to do with my students is I like to take them to national meetings. Okay. Um, my favorite is the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy because there we're kind of like small fish in a big pond so most people who attend that conference are have an md or a phd or both <laughs> um or the ceo of a biotech company that's working for trying to cure something and i like to expose them to the field and what's like potentially out there um, and when i take students there they get to see the current success of clinical trials and um, for example, this May, I took a few students and we got to watch um, individuals that couldn't sit upright. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they had muscle atrophy, and so none of their muscles could like actually function. They had to be on a respirator for the entire, their entire lifespan because their muscles just couldn't you know, contract in order for the lungs to expand and contract. And so uh, we watched a video of children, babies mm -hmm. that couldn't breathe on their own or even hold their head up, get a treatment, and in six months time, we're off the ventilators and we're holding their head up and then started to move around. And um, I like being able to, to show that to my students so they can see there's so many other things out there that you could do. Yeah. Um, and so many other clinical trials that are happening that you could be a part of. Yeah. Um, it's revolutionary. Yeah. All that is extremely life-changing wow and yeah you're you're giving you're shedding a lot of light uh for them just as so as uh, even in our industry of, of real estate that i am in uh, for a lot of agents uh, if they've never been to a national convention right. Uh, right. to see how uh, and i'm amazed myself every time i go on a convention and i meet a team of 11 agents who are doing 300 or 500 transactions a year and the way that they're systematically doing every single thing that's so regimented uh, it inspires us because we're here in silicon valley where we're in the tech, tech hub yeah. we might have too many apps to where we're not as efficient <laughs> uh, anymore uh, but just to see and learn from others uh, and see what they're doing so well and their successes right. Right. you can always bring that back and then succeed and then share the story too at the same time mm -hmm. and that's what you're doing with your mentees right. and what your mentor did for you that is that ex that small moment even though you said that it was quick it was, it, was, quick. <laughs> it was just a fast, quick conversation, but it led you to where you are today. You've got yeah. to be so proud of your accomplishments and your family, too, of what you've been doing. Oh, yeah. My family's definitely proud. Um, I don't think they ever understood really what was happening while I was doing it. My dad used to tell me that I was a professional student because oh. <laughs> I never was like really getting that paycheck. Um, but yeah, they now, well, I think it's like once I got to Stanford, they're like, oh, this is big. She's doing something big, you know? But yeah, they're very proud of me. And I, I have to give uh, attributions to Naomi, introduced us um, for this podcast here. And wow, 
this, I have to say, hands down, this has been my most exciting uh, podcast mm-hmm. to shoot so far because I've learned ex- so much about what you're doing and in your field. And potentially, um, now I'm going to follow you to see how this all pans out because I'd love to see 10 years, a decade from now, or if it takes longer, two decades, that's fine. <laughs> you know, we're still young. We, got, we, we have time. And, shooting uh, for 10. Shooting yeah, for 10. shooting for 10. And if, uh, once all that goes through, that yeah. it would be amazing. Yes. 300,000 people could have a cure yes. uh, to where they no longer have to live their lives knowing that they have to go to um, the hospital or for yeah. treatment yeah. Uh, all the time. Right. That's definitely a huge motivation for it you. Is. It is. It right. really is. Well, um, any last inspirational quotes or anything that you'd like to say to uh, our audience? I know you are mentoring 10 students right now and just giving them your all. Um, what, anything that you could share with our audience? That yeah, um, I think I would say that um, it's going to be hard. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Of course. Um, so push past any kind of misfortune or hurdles that you might experience and keep your eye on the prize. Yeah. Um, because it's totally worth it in the end. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much yeah. for you. being on Small Moment Big Impact. Really appreciate it. Thank you.